you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. When the music started, I wondered where it came from. The low haunt of an air carried on the careless wind, the lift of a jackdaw caught by a breeze from the mountain. Someone was playing the flute hidden by a wall, not knowing that anyone anywhere could listen in, walking through the simplest song that seemed to need the broadest clearest upland sky i listened then to the rarest of music the one played for no one every hesitation and every step the haunting took across the sky was let alone to touch its full eternal measure every note allowed to float beyond itself to a world with no approaching end you are listening to glen trosna by david white in this episode of ai ready healthcare i talked to matthias unberat about his position on how explainable ai should develop and embrace healthcare as we are seeing more and more ai for healthcare products that are coming out that needs the regulatory approval welcome to the fifth season of ai ready healthcare i'm your host anirban and it is a pleasure to welcome our guest for today professor matthias unberat matthias is an assistant professor in johns hopkins university usa where he leads the advanced robotics and computationally augmented environments research group his research in hopkins consolidates the efforts of computer vision medical physics and medicine to develop surgeon centric end to end computer assisted solutions with a specific focus on image guided surgery yeah we are really looking forward to an engaging conversation with Matthias about his recently published preprint uh, about human factors of transparent machine learning in medicine welcome to the podcast matthias thank you so much for having me it's a great pleasure to be here all right so the first question is always about the formative years the becoming how did you become who you are the researcher who you are so can you please walk us through of course i'm happy to so I started my my career in academia I think as a as a student of physics which is I think not very well represented in a lot of the work that I do now but it was interesting in that it provided me with a very broad perspective of 
what is happening in, in, in the sciences and a lot of the mathematical foundations that, that now come in handy in solving many of the problems that we're looking at. And towards the end of, of my bachelor's studies, my uncle, who together with Willy Kalenda had a company um, and still has a company in, in what is now called the Medical Valley in Franconia, close to Siemens, that is called quality assurance in radiology and medicine. And they were building phantoms as tools to calibrate CT scanners. So he involved me in that company and I was able to do internships with them and learn about the medical imaging that goes into multispectral CT imaging and understanding how certain properties of materials result in different, well, Hounsfield values as, as these phantoms are being constructed. And I had the opportunity to, to go into uh, the Institute for Medical Physics in Erlangen and acquire data and be exposed hands-on to, to research with these scanners and, of course, also talk to stakeholders in, in that field. And that sparked my interest in becoming part of that community. So when I had the opportunity after, I tried to work my way a little bit away from physics and go into more uh, engineering research. And Erlangen had, had a program that was on optical, advanced optical technologies. And I joined that master's because it was essentially uh, ideally situated right between engineering and, uh, and, and physics. So I didn't have to do the leap completely. I walked my way slowly, slowly through there. And to, towards the end of that program, I started to get engaged with, uh, with Andreas Meyer, who later became my PhD advisor, and also engaged in research at Stanford in the Radiological Sciences Lab over there with Rebecca Ferrick, uh, where I really started to sharpen my skills in computer vision as applied to CT reconstruction, motion estimation, and these sorts of problems. And then during my PhD, I, I continued in that line of work working on computer vision-based approaches for motion compensation in coronary artery imaging to try and, and image the coronary arteries as they move um, during angiography. Well, after that, I ended up joining Hopkins as a postdoc working with, with Monsieur Navab, Russ Taylor, and Mehran Armand, mostly of this, of course, on interventional guidance and surgical robotics. So that was very interesting because my previous work was very strongly focused on computational aspects, whereas here at Hopkins, we have a lot of our research happens in centers, and the centers are by design multidisciplinary with stakeholders from computer science and computer vision, but of course, also mechanical engineers, computer engineers, and clinicians who come together as part of these centers and try to take a more holistic view onto developing solutions for, for the pressing needs in healthcare, which I think has quite substantially shaped my, my current research program, where we try to take on a system perspective that goes all the way from data acquisition, workflow modeling to processing the data and, and inferring the information that we're interested in, but then communicating also to, to people, which I think is what we're talking a bit more about today. It's wonderful summary of how you shaped your career. And I guess it's really interesting to see that you started from physics. That's, I would say in the podcast, that's one of the first. I don't have any other guests from before who had a physics background, but from physics, you went to the more computer science sort of focus, which is quite common, at least within the Mikai community. And now you are moving more towards this Kaya holistic approach. That's also, I guess, maybe not that common, but it's still quite relevant. And this brings us also a lot of human factors, because unlike uh, Meek, where you can just download data from whatever repository and go ahead, jog along, that doesn't work in surgery. So is it fair to say that's also a, a sort of the reason or the first spark of interest of your new venture into transparency 
explainable AI in medicine? I think so. I mean, there is a, we, we have a collaboration with an ophthalmologist here. And the topic that we worked on was uveal melanoma. Um, uveal melanoma is an interesting disease because essentially it has two classes, two essentially outcomes for patients. One is highly metastatic and fatal. The other one, usually patients fare relatively well. It's not that metastatic. And there is a um, gene expression profile test that can be done, but it is very expensive and not widely available. And there was this idea that uh, we should see whether computer vision and machine learning could potentially serve as a surrogate for this test because it would make well, outcome prediction and gene expression profiling more, more accessible. And we did that. And this is something that right now cannot be done. Well, well, experts and pathologists can read these cytology slides and can infer some characteristics of it, uh, directly linking it to, to the trajectory of the disease and gene expression profile is not currently feasible. So we ended up developing this algorithm and to our large surprise, it worked relatively well above 90% accuracy in, 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 in a balanced test set. So that prompted the questions on, okay, now, now we have this algorithm that can do really well. It accepts certain features and somehow this inference and association is there. The question is, what is this association? And can we, uh, can, can we drive further insight into mechanism of disease in order to inform pathologists on what to look out for? And also think about how this algorithm should work with pathologists if we think about translating it. So this prompted a little bit more our initial thoughts around, well, how would we generate this guidance? And then there is a lot of work in, in the clinical field right now that has been focusing on saliency maps and in a way that was always a little bit disappointing <laughs> from, from my perspective, at least, particularly because I think that in my conversations with collaborators, whenever we presented some results, they'd say, well, can you show me saliency maps? And I'm like, I'm not convinced that they do what you think that they are doing. So that's, I think, where we, where we started finding that there is this mismatch between what techniques promise to do, what people may or may not believe that these techniques do, and what they actually do and can accomplish. And that prompted us to, as we developed our own methods, of course, talk more closely to our collaborators to understand what their needs are, to understand how they would like to look at this problem and how they look at the algorithm that we have created. But at the same time, also take a look at what everybody else out there is doing, which prompted then the survey paper that you talk about. Yeah, so I was about to basically come to the survey paper, but since you already mentioned, so this is a recent survey. Well, by recent, I guess it appeared a couple of months ago in the public domain in Oxiv. I think it's available. And you also tweeted thread about the main findings of this survey. So the Survey is about transparent machine learning in medicine. We will put the link of the preprint in our podcast description. But before we go into the details of it, can you give our listener a sort of takeaway, three major takeaways from this survey? Yes, happy to. So, of course, this is a preprint at this moment in time. And so it is to be taken with a grain of salt since it hasn't undergone peer review yet. But I think that the Primary insights that I think I, I would like to feature are the following. So the first one is that when we move towards transparent or interpretable machine learning, we're somehow shifting the way how we should be looking at these models because we're looking at developing systems that not only perform relatively well on a task, which can be measured quantitatively, but we move to some human factors engineering goals that can not really be measured in that same way. And because we do that, this 
word that we like to use, interpretable, explainable, transparent, whatever it may be, is not, is not actually a property of the model, but it is something that in the human-computer interaction community is known as an affordance, which essentially is a relationship between what the system does and what the, the intended user, well, knows, understands, what their context is, and a couple of other things. And these two things need to be matched in order for that system to truly afford transparency to that specific target user. And through this definition, one can see, and this is why I think this definition is useful, that different ways of achieving transparency will carry different affordances for different target users. And this is something, I think, a perspective that is currently missing a little bit from a lot of the technological developments that we've been seeing in our community, but maybe even beyond. So this is the, um, I think this is the first one. The second one, I think, is that there is clear interest in developing such systems, and we make incredible advances in developing novel explainable AI, transparent AI technology that are well beyond saliency maps, right? that can hopefully soon explain very well what certain AI algorithms do. So there is incredible advances, and a lot of people are very actively working on this field and our review surveys, some of these works for uh, medical image analysis. So that's definitely exciting. But the last point is somehow a synthesis of these two, which is the fact that while we do see a whole lot of work that is in this field, that tries to advance this field and contributes technology and, and methodological solutions, the work is very strongly lacking in the sense that it isn't grounded in the needs of the target users. In fact, many of the papers that we have found don't even specify who they are for, right? So we can guess it's for the developer to understand that their system is, is not biased. It might be for the provider, right? For whom the system should invoke trust. It can be for the patient, right? But you can see that without being explicit, without being specific about what the system, who, who the system is targeting, in what context the system is targeting that specific user, it is very difficult to understand whether the design choices that are being made as part of the development are indeed justified. And then, of course, right, there are two aspects to this. One, of course, is justifying it. On the other hand, is testing it. And what we've really been finding is that user involvement, right, even having, say, clinicians who clearly, for many of these works, are the desired customers, are not part of the multidisciplinary teams to develop these algorithms. So there is a huge disconnect in between, between what systems are, well, hypothesized to do versus what actually is currently being demonstrated or justified in these design choices, which, well, cynically put, puts a lot of the work that currently has been happening at risk of, of being ultimately wasted efforts because we don't know whether we should have invested the time and effort in developing a system. And, you know, this is not, this is true also for, for some of the work that we initially did in this area because, well, it was before we thought about it in, in this specific way. Yeah, that's a really great summary. And you touched a lot of key issues that, we will go into one by one, but let's first try to be, break down the first issue that you talked about, which is about affordance, right? So we are talking about these high-stake decision systems such as medicine, and their trust has always been at the center, right? So trust is really 
essential when we are talking about relationship between humans, such as doctors and patients. And then when we are talking about transparent machine learning and you are advocating about the affordance, that probably has sort of a very correlated situation with the trust that we typically talk about. So in that sense, when it comes to affordance between the AI model and the user, can you give us some perspective of how we can measure such a difficult trick? Because that's not, I mean, in a layman way, I would not think that's very easy to measure. Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think the answer that, that I can come up with to this is that I think the way that we would measure this is quite different from the tools of measurement that many of the people in the Mikai community are currently using for lots of the research, because this is not something that we can write a script, develop an algorithm, and then measure trust or measure whether or not this affords transparency to our target users. This is just not how we can do it. Really what it requires, is it, and this is what we're advocating for, I think, as part of, the, of this preprint, is that what we should probably be doing is, is slowing down and involving earlier in this design process, the people that we hope to develop for. And the reason why this is particularly important is because when we think about advancing healthcare and thinking about designing for clinicians, then there is a pretty large knowledge gap and knowledge imbalance between what we as computer scientists, machine learning engineers, and data scientists know and what the clinicians know and need. So hypothesizing about that is complicated and asking them is probably a better idea. So really we need to find ways of, before we commit on building the full high fidelity prototype, we should build something that is much easier to do. It's much quicker to do. Maybe it can be a paper prototype. Um, it can be something that is an animated PowerPoint presentation that has certain interactability and not others, right? No machine learning model yet at all. Um, and just try to talk to the people that we envision as the possible users of, of the system later and see what they think. And very likely we will find that they interact with us and they think about it very differently than we thought about it initially. And if we don't leak that information, which we usually do when we have already built our system, and say, oh, this is the system, it can do X and Y. And if you click here, it will do this, right? If we just show them, this is the prototype, use it and think aloud as you use it, we will gain quite substantial insights on things that we would not have otherwise anticipated. And that in turn informs how we should design or how we should alter you know, the design of the system, of the envisioned system that hopefully we haven't built yet because we weren't sure how to build it as we go forward, right? And this obviously is an iterative process that we should undergo, right? So really it's about involving the stakeholders and making sure that it works for, for them Right. By appreciating the fact that we have, as engineers who have been working in such teams for a very long time, we have non-negligible intuition right, that works some of the time, but it can be wrong some of the time as well. Right? So somehow following this iterative process where we validate the assumptions that we're making by involving the stakeholders that we truly want to be developing for, I think we can just make sure that we're building systems that, that truly have the properties that we would like to achieve in practice. Yeah, that's a, I guess, reasonable way of thinking about the fact that if these systems need to work in tandem with the humans, then we better bring the humans early on and measure how they would interact with these systems rather than 
just, I guess, do it the other way around, make a system and shove it in their uh, table that see how this is how it works. But just to bring sort of the other viewpoint in this entire, uh, let's say, field, it's basically there is this other idea in the field where if I can rephrase the idea in a way that transparency is not really that important for medical AI. Rather, we can approach the problem just like we do approach the problem of randomized control trials that is quite perfected by the pharmaceutical industry in measuring the end effect rather than really worrying too much about how it's ending up making that effect. So yours seems like a very different approach to that. So can you probably give us some compare or contrast of the strengths and the weaknesses of each of these? Of course, thank you. Yes, uh, I think that is a, a view that is emerging more and more. And I think that in a way, that view makes complete sense considering a lot of the recent news about the brittleness of AI in healthcare and you know potential biases relative to protected and sensitive factors and attributes of patients. So of course, Adopting a more well-justified, well-developed testing and validation methodology, uh, probably using using the tools of randomized controlled trials is, is certainly a great idea. And we've not really been seeing enough of it, uh, particularly for, for AI systems that claim to outperform radiologists and other things. So there, you know, that is certainly true. And I would very much appreciate more of these trials happening. On the other hand, I feel that these two viewpoints are not uh, dichotomous, but in a way complementary, is that a system that is transparent uh, or interpretable to a specific um, pay, uh, population, say, say providers, would still need to be properly tested, potentially using a randomized controlled trial, potentially using other methodology. But I don't think that just because we do proper testing, we do not need the other part. I think we could validate and demonstrate through a randomized controlled trial that a system that has very precise specifications as they have been demonstrated through a randomized controlled trial are truly enough for clinicians or providers to act on that system's recommendation, right? But again, this is a hypothesis and it needs to be demonstrated from my view onto this problem, which has been, I think, shaped up in conversations with, with my HCI colleagues. And so in a way, I feel that this close connection that is being made to, to drugs and lab-based tests and so on that have very similar properties and that they are also superhuman, right? No human would be able to analyze, say, blood count or other things is also, I think, in, in a way, it makes sense because these are tools that are used all the time and they perform tasks that, that people cannot do. On the other hand, I feel that these tools are in a way interpretable in the sense that they have very precise chemical reactions that happen. And the reason why this is interpretable and why people use it so uh, effortlessly is because in as part of, say, the pre-med track in university, people have been exposed to the ideas and to the scientific uh, background in chemistry, in biology. So they, they have a general feeling of what is happening and what is going on. And they have the opportunity to also learn about when a specific test is indicated versus wh whether it is counterindicated because of potential cross-interactions with other things. 
which in a way is very similar to some of the explanations and interpretability approaches that right now are being developed. I don't think that, uh, as, as I said, these things are fundamentally opposite. I think that there is a world where, where both of these things can come together. I guess when you are summarizing your paper, another point that you mentioned, which is that the diversity of users, users are varied, users are different. If we, if we are talking about clinicians, there are specialties such as radiologists versus pathologists versus oncologists. But for these models, probably the user base go even beyond that. We are talking about regulatory approval boards, patients, insurance companies. All of these and many others have stake in these decisions. So was it really surprising for you to see that only half of the studies that you looked at specified who the users will be? It perhaps wasn't surprising because I think we had read already quite a couple of papers before right, when we were doing our own work and then we had this hunch and then this is why we wanted to do it more systematically and identify what the landscape actually looks like. It, it is, of course, a little bit saddening. On the other hand, it is also completely understandable. And I think that the reason why that is fully understandable is that clinicians particularly, but other populations of potential target users as well, like patients, are very difficult to reach, right? Talking about, you know, involvement of these populations and of these user groups in early formative research is very easily said. It is much more complicated to actually pull this off because the, the time of clinicians, if they have any, is very expensive. Then if we have early prototypes that potentially are not very close to being finished products, we potentially end up having... To, to test multiple times. So we end up wasting people's time because the initial prototypes are nowhere close to where they need to be. So it's, it's very difficult to, to get this right. And if we talk about, say, patient populations, you know, patients are also, they have very, very specific traits. Like you don't necessarily want to involve them in research if they are undergoing a difficult situation in their life. So there are a lot of complications around trying to involve users early. And I'm very glad that there are. Now, slowly, I think several approaches that potentially can, can help get this right. I can perhaps talk about two that I know of. Um, the, the one is, um, is something that we're doing as part of a new AI technology collaboratory that has been established at Hopkins. It is, it's a huge NIH-funded uh, center that, that I am lucky to be part of, where we're investigating the emergence of AI technology for the aging population. And there is a lot of user research similar to the topics that we talked about earlier that has to be done, for example, well, in the context of wearables, for example, in the context of, well, robots and AI-assisted living, that we can make very strong assumptions about how these systems, how this technology would interact with the adults, caregivers, or whoever we, we develop for, but we don't really know. So we would really like to test. And this is where I think part of this huge center that we have established here now is the fact that we maintain a database of stakeholders, both caregivers as well as elderly adults and so on, that have volunteered to be part of such research efforts. And uh, we build mimicked uh, facilities, for example, for cared, uh, cared living, for the hospital environment, for an in-home uh, caregiving facility and environment, and so on, that people who work with us as part of pilot, pilot seed grants and so on can, can get access to. 
and they can work with these people to answer exactly the questions that, that we were talking about earlier in a population that has a priori agreed to actually be part of such type of research. So that is wonderful, and it would be great to see similar efforts to be available and emerging much more broadly. The other thing that we are currently looking at, this is emerging research, so I will share just a little bit, is the fact that we hope that we will be able to mimic certain behaviors in, in different populations that are much more accessible. And one example for which we're currently trying to establish this is for visual search tasks as they emerge in some of the radiology reading tasks, for example, in cancer screening, but also in digital pathology. And what we're hoping to do is that we are able to mimic tasks using completely different type of imagery that have and mimic certain traits. And if we present them to people who are recruited, just regular people, that in testing some of the hypotheses that we may be having around such uh, human AI interaction aspects will promote and provoke a very similar reaction and similar behavior in regular people using that proxy surrogate task, then they later will also in, in that highly specialized population of radiologists that is not particularly uh, easily accessible. So essentially what we hope that we will be able to do is to you know, design and develop surrogate tasks, test them on large numbers of, of participants that can be very easily assessed, for example, through Amazon Mechanical Turk or through other forms of, um, of testing, identify the most promising hypotheses, and then only those uh, take them to, to the expert users later then to, to test whether truly they the effects or so on that we have observed in the other population still preserve um, in, in, in the experts. Yeah, these are two, I guess, fantastic initiatives. Still early days, but I, I'm really excited to see how these initiatives bring fruit. I guess you mentioned in your survey article that you prescribe more research towards like the empirical formative user research. In that direction, that should be more often done within the transparent machine learning context than they are currently happening. So if I want to hear more about, let's say, some more examples of formative research that maybe you are currently not doing, but what you wish people could have done, do you have some examples of that sort of formative research questions in mind? Of course. So I think to be precise, so what we're advocating for is essentially for people who are interested in research along the lines of uh, transparent and explainable AI to slow down and ask the more important questions first, which is, if I were to design a system in this and that way, would that system result in the specific human factors engineering goals like trust or usability that I would like to see? And this is not something that is unique, I think, to, to transparent AI. It also happens in other fields that exist in the Mikai community, like, for example, augmented reality, where by design, you have a user in the loop type evaluation setting. And if your system doesn't work well for, for the users that you're testing them on, the values and numbers that you will be getting quantitatively are not necessarily representative of what your system could truly achieve had you gotten the human factors engineering right. So this is, I think, the reason I we advocate for that as part of the preprint is the fact that this is not something that is currently much present in the Mikai community, which 
has been dominated, I think, in recent years with state-of-the-art improvements, with novel machine learning architectures and so on. And as well, also, I think the challenges, which I think we had we had a great podcast um, in, in season four with Dr. Lina Meyer-Hein talking about challenges and related issues that have a large impact, I think, on the community. That's, that's uh, un- undoubted. And in a way, it's good to see that we have standardized metrics, standardized ways of measuring progress through that, which is much more complicated if we talk about human factors engineering and empirical studies, because it depends so much on the patient population, the numbers of specimen, or, you know, the, the numbers of samples that you can collect as part of such a, such a study is usually much smaller than the amount of samples that you will get if you actually run on a challenge data set. And so there is a bit of difficulty here where I think if we as a community decide that we don't really appreciate that, uh, we will have quite substantial trouble in, in doing this type of research because we will hit glass ceilings on you know, where we can disseminate our work and, and how we want to be part of the community. And this is why I think that we advocate for the fact that slowing down and, and accepting studies like this as an important and integral part to our community, uh, to the Mikai community, right, is, is important if we want to truly think about, you know, human in the loop designs, human AI interaction, and, and so on, which I think pretty much everybody will, will agree seems to have a place in the overall conversation on, on AI-assisted medicine. Yeah, this is absolutely a very crucial point you are making, right? That if we are talking about human in the loop, we can't miss the human factor out of that. That makes little sense. But just because I'm curious about, in general, how your, let's say, research has always been around, let's say, image-guided surgery, CT reconstruction, etc. You told a little bit of the backstory of how you went into this ophthalmic direction and that shifted your focus from that to more of an explainable AI. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, let's say, initial uh, hunches? What really was the missing part in this direction and what really basically got you going into this? Yeah, so I think that in general, I had lots of conversations with uh, with people in that field and I was giving, I think it was in 2018 when I was giving a lecture at the Augmented Reality Summer School in Zurich. And I was thinking about whether or not I should give a research-based talk on some of the augmented reality solutions that we had developed or whether I should do something something else And I decided for doing something else, which turned out to be a great idea. And the thing that I did was I gave a talk on human-centered design because I felt that a lot of the engineering disciplines these days are very strongly determined or shaped by the engineering way of looking at problems, which is you work with somebody that somebody tells you, I have this problem. And the only thing that you hear is that, oh, yeah, mm -hmm, I have a solution, right? Because that's what engineers do. They solve problems. And in a way, that is quite opposite to what human-centered design tells us to do, which is we shouldn't assume that we have a solution. We have an informed guess on what a solution may be, but really what we need to do is we need to test it and we need to take that slowly. And in fact, what we may find is that that person tells us their frustrations 
that you know result in what they call a problem but ultimately that may not be the true problem to solve so taking this slower approach thinking about the, the overall problem space and design challenge as the, these people call it a bit more carefully and then identifying the, the proper plug into this into how to actually you know design solutions for that specific challenge started for me to think a little bit more broadly about this overall, you know, human involvement, human-centered design, human-computer interaction. And since I already had a presence in augmented reality, I think that amplified the way how we look at some of the research that we do now, of course, also including human-AI interaction. And I think it applies broadly, uh, not, not only in, in the transparent and explainable AI context that, that we discussed here. It, it applies for, for image-guided surgery. It applies pretty much everywhere where Essentially, you know, how do we make sure that the algorithm that we have developed, right, that does image-based navigation and tells you in augmented reality where, where to put a drill pin somewhere in anatomy, that that is truly the, the trajectory that you should be drilling on, right? There is, uh, systems fail. Sometimes they fail gracefully. Sometimes they don't. And it's not always clear when they do. So this has essentially also sparked some other research that we will be presenting at, at IPCAI, where we try to test whether some of the commonly used visualization paradigms and feedback paradigms in augmented reality, but also beyond that, are truly effective right, in communicating to, to the users of that system whether or not the system did or didn't perform as expected. And what we're finding is that the current visualization paradigms don't do any better than chance in telling whether or not the system has or hasn't failed. And in a way, that's disheartening, right? And in another way, it's exciting because it means that there is a lot of research to be done. All right. So I guess on that note, we are coming to the last part of the podcast, or at least the episode. And there uh, we have this tradition of asking that if you have this sort of infinite resources, you don't have to worry about paper deadlines, proposal deadlines, any of these or you have enough good students to work with and you can focus on one question around transparent machine learning that you would like to solve for the next five years, what would that be? That's a great question. I think when, when, when you frame it like this around transparent machine learning, then I think the, the topic that I have grown much more fond of and that fascinates me a lot is, is really the people, the, you know, behavioral aspects around uh, what people do, how people think, how people act is incredibly fascinating to me uh, because it applies much more broadly and gives insights in, in, in a lot of what happens ar around us in everyday life. Yeah, I think it would be that. And in a way, um, I, I've been lucky enough to branch out a little bit and we're starting some, some research projects in, in that area as well, where we look at estimating cognitive effort and doing these types of things. So um, I'm lucky to have a group of these exceptional students that you talk about that, that allow me to start looking more deeply in, this, in, in, in these challenges. That's a really interesting and fascinating direction. And I guess the more you dig, the more you realize that there is so much more to learn about humans and, and how humans interact with technology, specifically, of course, in the healthcare setting, but in the more general world as well. Yeah, and I wish you all the best in finding a big push within the Mikhai community about human factors engineering, because I totally agree on that part that it's really whatever we are doing in Mikhai, the, the, the humans are really at the front and center of it. And we can't simply ignore them because it's 
easier to publish papers if we just ignore them. We have to be much more careful than that. I totally uh, agree on that point. And thank you so much for taking the time, Matthias, in explaining all this, the research that you are doing. This is really a fascinating work and yeah, all the best. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure.